Well, good morning. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Acts chapter 8. Uh, this summer, as we've been working through the beginning of Acts and, and charting the initial spread of, of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, we, we keep coming back to this one idea, which is God's plan for building his kingdom is not something, it's someone. God's plan for reaching the lost is not a certain outreach event, it's not a, a certain strategy, it's not a certain program, it's not a certain agenda. God's plan is you. God's plan is me. Once you are called to salvation by God, you are commissioned to service for God. In Matthew 4, shortly after meeting them, Christ told his disciples, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Since the beginning of the church in 33 AD, large movements of God have always been built on the foundation of small acts of obedience because the kingdom of God always moves forward one person at a time, one family member, one friend, one co-worker, one neighbor. We see this demonstrated over and over again throughout the book of Acts. Yes, we've seen situations where the gospel is proclaimed in large group settings, but even more, the church grew through the sharing of the gospel in everyday conversations in much smaller groups, often one-on-one. -on -one. In the second half of chapter 8, we see one of these encounters. Last week, we were introduced to a young leader in the church named Philip, who became the first missionary in church history. When a season of, of persecution arose in the aftermath of, of Stephen's execution, Philip left Jerusalem and then took the gospel into enemy territory. He went down to Samaria. And, and if you remember the, the well-known conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman that happens in John chapter 4, then you know Jews and Samaritans weren't exactly best friends in the first century. Far from it. As a matter of fact... Their hatred for one another spanned several generations, but when Philip came into town, the gospel started breaking down those barriers. Against all odds, many Samaritans were trusting Christ because of the preaching of this young Jewish man. Almost overnight, Philip was fanning the flames of a full-blown revival in the most unlikely place. But then God sent him on another assignment to share the good news with an African man who is on a dusty road, and this would continue the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So let's read together verses 26 through 38. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit, and by the way, the spirit there and, and the angel of the Lord before, those are synonymous. The directions are for Philip are all coming from the same source. So the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? 
And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And so as we continue following Philip this morning, we're going to have a, a conversation about evangelism. And anytime we enter into a discussion about the topic of personal evangelism, we, we have to start from a, a place of, of honest assessment, honest self-evaluation. We must readily admit that for most of us, our bread and butter is not sharing the gospel in the public square. It's certainly not mine. You know, I've been around brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who, who it's second nature to. I can remember eating with another pastor who, who asked the waitress if they had any living water. And she said, no, I don't think so. We, we have tap water. You're sort of confused. And then he, he goes right into John chapter 4. Would you like some? Or, I remember being on a mission trip and another pastor walked away for a few minutes and I said, hey man, where'd you go? Did you go to the bathroom? He said, no, actually, I just shared the gospel with those six teenagers over there. And in five minutes, he had six gospel conversations. The rest of that trip, I had two. And so a few of you might be like those friends, those people that I've encountered in the church, but most of you are probably like me. Most of you would probably say, I haven't had a gospel conversation in a few years. Or, or I've never shared my faith before. Or I wouldn't even know where to start. And if that's you, let, let me just remind you before we get too far into this that sanctification is a process. Sometimes sanctification looks like taking three steps forward and then two steps back. But as long as you're moving the ball down the field, you're on the right track. And you should be less concerned about where you are and more concerned about where you're heading because the truth is as we grow in our faithfulness individually God will increase our fruitfulness collectively and we saw this back in Acts chapter 2 after Pentecost Luke described that that initial gathering of believers that that first gathering of the early church as a, as a group who was devoted to the apostles teaching who was devoted to worship who was devoted to fellowship who was devoted to prayer, who was devoted to service. And as a direct result of, of their faithfulness, God increased their fruitfulness. Verse 47, the last verse of chapter 2 says, And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now when we, we look at this story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we could focus on several different topics. 
which are which are present in these verses, but as a source of encouragement for you, as you take the gospel into Lowndes County, I want to show you how God's sovereignty and human responsibility intersect in salvation stories. I want to show you that as we go, God goes with us, which should be a comforting word for us. In his classic book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer wrote, When evangelism is regarded as as only a human enterprise, it's a hopeless task. It cannot, in principle, produce the desired effect. We can preach clearly, fluently, and attractively. We can talk to individuals in the most pointed and challenging way. We can organize special services. We can distribute tracts. We can put up posters. And we can flood the community with publicity. But apart from God, there's not the slightest prospect that all this effort will bring a single soul home to Him. And so we cannot deny that our commission involves telling others about Christ. We saw it in Acts 1. Scripture makes it clear. But Scripture also promises that we're not alone in this work, that when we go, God goes with us. And we'll see this happen in a couple specific ways in Acts 8, 26 through 38. Look at verse 26 for the first one. The Lord said to Philip, Rise, and go toward the south to the road that goes down Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and he rose and went. So right away, the Spirit of God is active in salvation. That's the first thing I want you to see. The Spirit of God is active in salvation. As we already mentioned, Philip was at the center of a gospel explosion in Samaria, and then God sent him to the the middle of the desert in, in North Africa. Like on the surface, this reassignment doesn't seem logical or rational. In Samaria, Philip was a vital part of a new flourishing ministry. After he preached, many responded to the gospel. Peter and John came down and they approved of his teaching and, and their understanding and the Holy Spirit sealed their salvations. And so Philip stood at the center of this growing fellowship of new believers who were filled with enthusiasm, excitement, and this deep hunger for the word of God. And then God said, go. God said, I appreciate it, Philip, but it's time for you to move on to your next assignment. And so to put this into context, this would be like a pastor of an established, growing, vibrant, thriving church in a suburb of Atlanta being commissioned to plant a church in one of those tiny towns that you drive through on your way to the beach in the armpit of Florida. One minute he is leading a thriving ministry, the next minute he's walking into a season of uncertainty. Now we can't know what was running through Philip's head, and, and obviously he, he went. You know, he, he got up and went. He was walking in obedience. In a minute we'll see that he was running in obedience. But I imagine as he walked, 
some say 150, 200 miles to this other place as he walked. I imagine he wasn't overly excited about all this. You know, as things were, were happening in Samaria, I imagine that maybe he was planning on staying there. Maybe he had visions of establishing roots in the community. Maybe he dreamed of, of planning a new church. But God had other plans. God said, rise and go. So Philip rose and, and went. He didn't understand all of God's plan, but he gave God all of his trust. And by the way, God doesn't, I mean, God rarely lays out every detail for any of us. In most cases, we take one step of faith, and then we take another, and then we take another, and then we take another. And so as Philip's making the way down the road, he saw a chariot parked on the side of the road, and the Spirit said to him in verse 29, Go over and join this chariot. Now notice how he responds in verse 30. Philip ran. So God told him to go south, just in a general direction. He started walking. Then God told him to go to the chariot. He started running. So the picture was still blurry, but it's coming into focus a little bit. And so Philip moves from a stroll to a sprint, which tells us a lot about his trust in the Holy Spirit. He had confidence in the Spirit because he had never been led astray by the Spirit. You know, in baseball, a great leadoff hitter that bats at the top of the lineup is there to set the table for the rest of the lineup. He normally has a high on base percentage, provides many opportunities for RBIs. In a similar way, the Spirit of God sets the table for us. And so when Philip caught the chariot, he found an Ethiopian man who was already seeking the Lord. Look at verse 27. It gives us a few details about him. Three things. One, he was a court official of Candace. We should mention because the king of Ethiopia was respected and venerated as some sort of divine being, he was considered too sacred to work. And since he couldn't be bothered with the daily demands of secular royal leadership, his mother assumed all of the responsibility. So Candace was not a proper name, it was a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. And also, today Ethiopia is a smaller country, but back then it was, it was basically all of Africa south of the Nile River. So the man in this chariot was in charge of the entire treasury of this huge African nation. He was essentially their chief financial officer. Two, he was a eunuch. I won't offer any extra detail here, but needless to say, if you're going to be working in close proximity with the mother of the king, they wanted to ensure that you didn't get any frisky ideas. And three, he traveled to Jerusalem to worship. And this is the most important thing that we're told about him because it gives us some insight into his spiritual state. Based on our, based on our best estimates, he probably traveled somewhere between 500 and, and 1,200 miles to worship in Jerusalem. We don't know his story. 
We don't have any specifics about his faith background, but since he endured several weeks of journeying across the deserts of North Africa and the Middle East to get to the holy city, we can assume he was discontent with the religions of his people. He was weary of the loose morals of paganism. He was wandering through various worldviews. His heart was searching for answers, and somewhere along the way, he turned to the God of Israel. In his brokenness, the, the Holy Spirit was drawing him in. But he came all the way to Jerusalem to worship God, and he left with very little clarity about him. More than likely, knowing what we know about Judaism at this point in time, he probably only found disappointment in the cold formality of their religious ritual. And so he's riding along this desert road, tired, frustrated, and hopeless. He's reading the Word of God, but he doesn't have eyes to see. He doesn't have a heart to understand. And then suddenly, a young Jewish man came on his radar. Don't miss this. As the Spirit was drawing the Ethiopian man in, he was also sending Philip out at the same time. This was not a, a random, unplanned chance encounter. This was God's sovereign plan. And once the Spirit connected them in the chariot, the Word united them in Christ. Which brings us to the second point, the Word. The Word of God is sufficient for salvation. Now to be fair, the Holy Spirit will not always set it up on a T for you like he does for Philip here. Because when Philip finds the Ethiopian man, he's reading from Isaiah 53. This would be like you walking up on someone who's reading John 3.16, saying, I don't know what to make of this. Let me tell you how John Piper describes Isaiah 53. He writes, Nowhere in the Old Testament does the gospel of Jesus Christ shine more clearly than Isaiah chapter 53. 700 years before Christ came to the world, God opened the eyes of the prophet to see into the very heart of his saving work, which is substitution. The Messiah is pierced and crushed in our place. The righteous in the place of the unrighteous. The loving shepherd in the place of the lost sheep. The exalted king in the place of the rebel subjects. Of all the Old Testament scrolls, he was reading from Isaiah 53. And Philip asked him, do you understand what he's reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? John Calvin comments that no one who is puffed up with confidence in his own intellect could be so readily taught as this man. You know, we mentioned his credentials earlier. It goes without saying he was a very important person. He was powerful, influential, high-ranking person who was well-respected among his people. When you consider his resume, you wouldn't be shocked if you found out that he was full of pride. However, when Philip asked, do you understand? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? 
This wasn't a, a self-centered, arrogant, proud man. This was a humble man who desperately wanted deeper knowledge about God. The Ethiopian eunuch shares a chapter with, with Simon the magician. But they could not be more different. As we saw last week, Simon was interested in acquiring the power of God, but the Ethiopian man was only interested in clarifying the work of God. Remember James 4.6 says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. With all humility, he told Philip, how can I understand? I don't understand. Can you help me? And if we skip down to verse 34, we, we see his primary issue. He can't determine who the suffering servant is. Now we know that the suffering servant being described in this famous passage is Christ. But it is a source of debate for some. Because in other parts of Isaiah, that the servant is Israel, or the servant is the prophet himself. For example, in Isaiah 41, God says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And in the next verse, you are my servant. So their servant, the servant being addressed, is the nation of Israel. And then in Isaiah 49, the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. There the servant is Isaiah the prophet. So a Jewish scholar may read Isaiah 53 and say the suffering servant is our, our people or the suffering servant is Isaiah or the suffering servant is maybe Jeremiah. But we believe the suffering servant is clearly and undeniably Jesus Christ. And Philip agreed. Look at how he answers the pressing question. Verse 35, he opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture. So using Isaiah 53 as a launching point, he told him the good news about Jesus. And so we know what the Ethiopian unit was reading in Isaiah 53, but we don't know how Philip shared the gospel using Isaiah 53. And because it's a, a deep well of gospel truth, he could have gone in, in several directions. But whichever way he went, the young evangelist probably brought it back around to two basic truths. The first truth is this. Christ washes away our sins. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. Every sin, every poor decision, every bad judgment, every crossword, every regret, every wrong choice was paid on the cross. Romans 8.1 reminds us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ followers are free from sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer burdened by shame. We're no longer condemned by God. The cross takes our sin and moves it as far as the east is from the west. 
And this is an important truth for everyone in the church. Because sometimes even though we are saved by grace, even though we are forgiven of our sins, we have this bad habit of continually dwelling on our past mistakes. You may be familiar with the satire site, the Babylon Bee. If you aren't, it's essentially the onion from a Christian worldview. But a few years ago, they had an article titled, I Know God Forgives Me, But I Can't Forgive Myself, says woman with a moral compass greater than God's. You know, when it's framed that way, it sounds silly. And yet many Christ followers spend far too much time carrying around extra emotional baggage over past mistakes. Listen, when you fall into sin, you must repent before God. And you must reconcile with others who are affected by your transgressions. But when you finish that work, you rest in Christ's finished work. God forgave you, so you need to forgive yourself. Because on the cross, He paid your debt in full. On the cross, He washed away your sins, past, present, and future. Second truth, Christ restores our relationship with God. Since the moment that Adam and Eve called God into question by taking a bite of the apple in the Garden of Eden, mankind became rebels against a holy God. Every one of us was born with a sinful nature. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe in, in total depravity, hang out with a toddler for a few hours. Truly. Hang out with a toddler for a few hours and Take away their favorite toy. Or don't do everything that they ask. And then come back to me and let me know how you feel. So verse 6 of Isaiah 53 says, We are like sheep who have gone astray. So we're born into rebellion. We're born searching for answers. Chasing idols. Scanning the world for something or someone to fill the void in our souls. But apart from God, we are completely, utterly hopeless. I want you to think about the Grand Canyon for a moment. If you've never been there, you've, you've certainly seen a picture of it, and we know how wide the divide is. I want you to consider a scenario where you're born on the left side of the canyon and God exists on the right side of the canyon. Now, without a, a bridge or a plane or a jetpack or some rock climbing gear or maybe a, a ramp and a motorcycle, you can't make it to the other side. You can't make it back to God on your own.
and some settle into this reality. Some don't even look to the other side. You know, they don't have God, but they have a great job. They have supportive family. They have fun friends. They may never see the right side of the canyon, but they have a, a big house with nice cars on the left side. They're putting in a pool on the left side. They live near the golf course and a delicious barbecue house on the left side. So over time, they grow comfortable and content on the left side and they don't even look over to the right side. They don't concern themselves with God at all. But others can't accept that. Others live in a, a constant state of unrest. Others know something is missing. Others can feel the disconnect. And they desperately want to cross that canyon and commune with their heavenly Father. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus made a way. That he built a bridge over the divide. And he walked from the left side to the right side. And he came to us and said, follow me. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him we might become the righteousness of God, that once you trust in Christ, God doesn't see your sin, he only sees his son. That's the substitution that's taking place. Let me give you another Piper reflection on Isaiah 53. He writes, you don't have to understand all the intricacies of how this works in order to be healed and forgiven any more than you have to understand how a computer works in order to write Letters on your word processor. God tells us what we need to know. His rejected servant is in fact a ransoming substitute for rebel subjects. That's the gospel. And Philip shared some version of this truth with the Ethiopian man. And he was saved and baptized on the spot. And so churches, as we go with the gospel, we should find confidence, encouragement, and, and motivation in the fact that the Spirit is working and the Word is sufficient. 2,000 years later, the Spirit is still working, the Word is still sufficient, and we are still called to go. The Apostle Peter says in his first epistle that we should always be ready. We should always be ready to give an answer to every man about the reason for our hope. And if we can get practical 
for a moment and close out in a practical place. We should understand that going with the gospel isn't as hard as we make it. That we can go while staying within the normal rhythms of our lives. We can go by becoming a little bit more intentional throughout the week. We can go with, with three simple steps that we have covered before. Intercede, invest, and invite. First, we, we intercede. Before you speak about God, you should speak with God. And when you pray for opportunities, you can pray specifically and you can pray generally. You can pray specifically for someone in your life. When, when you pray for a person by name, you are planting a seed. And I can't tell you if they'll ever entertain a gospel conversation. I can't tell you if, if they'll ever visit our church. I can't tell you if they'll ever trust in Christ. But I can tell you they won't move until the Spirit moves first. So pray for them. And you can pray generally too. Before you walk into Target, before you walk into Publix, before you walk into the gym, simply pray, God, if you want to use me, if you want to put a person in my path, I'm willing to talk about you. And sometimes you won't see a single opportunity from that. Other times you'll spend 45 minutes talking theology with a cashier in the Lowe's garden section. So first we intercede. We start, we start there. We start before the throne of God. Second, we invest. We invest our time in making connections with our friends and, and family, neighbors and co-workers who are apart from God. We invest our time in engaging with those within our circle. And for each one of us, making time for others will look different. could be a phone call to your brother. could be a shopping trip with an old friend. could be a coffee break with a co-worker. It could be a dinner party with your neighbors. It could be taking out your headphones. It could be looking up from your cell phone. Seeing who's around you. Starting a conversation. Just taking your blinders off for a minute. This isn't changing your lifestyle. This is shifting your priorities. Because we, we live in a context where we have to earn the right to share the gospel. We must invest before we invite. But that brings us to the final point. When we get the opportunity, we have to be ready to invite. And Philip came across this Ethiopian man reading Isaiah 53 and said, I can't understand it. And Philip, in Scripture says, starting there... Philip told him the good news. So when the opportunity comes, we invite. We should be ready with a word from Christ. We should be prepared to point to Jesus. We should be equipped to fill in the gaps of their understanding of the gospel. 
Because as the Apostle Paul said, how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the encounter of of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch that we see in Acts chapter 8, it's a reminder for us that your sovereignty and our responsibility intersect in in salvation in, in, in mysterious ways that we don't fully understand. We know that you're working beside behind the scenes. We know that the Spirit is drawing men, women, and children to himself. We, we know that your word is sufficient for salvation. And we also know that we're responsible to to open and, 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 and share the truth when the opportunity presents itself. And so, Father, this morning, as, as, we, as we bring this service to a close, I'm very aware that every person under the sound of my voice this morning either identifies with Philip or the Ethiopian eunuch. Some are in, in Christ like Philip, and they're called to go into into Lowndes County and then share the good news. They're they're called to to intercede, invest, and invite. But Father, I also know there may be someone among us this morning, someone in the room who, who relates more to the eunuch, someone who is restless, someone who's unsettled, someone who's anxious, who's who's searching for answers. And just as the Spirit of God drew in the Ethiopian man, He's drawing this person in too. And so, Father, this this morning, I pray whichever of those situations we find ourselves in, that you would minister to us there. that your spirit would work as we sing one final song together. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray.